The scripture reading for the sermon this morning comes from Exodus chapter 39, and it is, on the face of it, not a very gripping passage. It's about blue and purple yarn and metal plates, Uh, and I thought I'd give you a quick tidbit about the flow of Exodus before I read it. Um, After the Ten Commandments come, the Lord gives the Israelites instructions on how to build the tabernacle for about six chapters. Uh, instructions on the fabric and the posts and the foundations and the table and the lamp, lots and lots and lots of detailed instructions. Uh, And then comes this sad golden calf episode where Moses goes up in the mountains and the the Israelites fear and they build a golden calf to worship other gods uh, and judgment comes and then mercy and the Israelites and God renew their covenant with each other again. And after having restored and renewed the covenant, then the Israelites start building the tabernacle. And the author could have said, and they built the tabernacle. But the author spent another five or six chapters to repeat all of the same details they got before, except always with a phrase, and so the Israelites did just as the Lord commanded Moses. Uh, And I believe it's there As an experience, as a reader, you experience healing as the Israelites are returning to their God and doing what they are called to do. Exodus 39 excerpts. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the ephod of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, and they hammered out gold leaf, and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and the scarlet yarns, and into the fine twined linen in skilled design. He made the breast piece in skilled work in the style of an ephod of gold, and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. He also made the robe of the ephod woven of all blue, and the opening of the robe in it was like the opening of a garment, with a binding around the opening so that it might not tear. And on the hem of the robe they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe, between the pomegranates, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, and the turban of fine linen, and the caps of fine linen, and the linen undergarments of fine twined linen, and the sash fine twined linen and of blue and purple and scarlet yarns embroidered with needlework as the Lord had commanded Moses. And they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent, and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases. 
the covering of tans, ram skins, and goat skins, and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold, and its lamps with the lamps set, and all its utensils, and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars, and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords, and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons and for their service as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Nathaniel. Right. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the anticipation of this moment. We thank you that you take a mere human words from uh, a lectern, a pulpit, and you make them into words of life. <clears throat> apart from your grace, apart from your Holy Spirit, this will be an exercise in absolute futility. But you raise the dead, you give the deaf new ears, and you give the blind new eyes. And so cause us, Lord, to believe that even as we hear your word spoken to us, let us believe that it is more than just a lecture, just a presentation, just a bunch of ideas strung together. But you are present among us with your power to raise the dead. We pray to that end in the name of Christ, the risen one, we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, thank you, Nathaniel, for the introduction to an unusual chapter. Uh, some of you, I know you're hanging on just the edge of your seat to hear about pomegranates, so we'll get to that as quickly as we can. But you realize that Exodus is actually quite an extraordinary book because it does cover a lot of details about this tabernacle worship. There is, there's chapter after chapter after chapter, and you have been spared um, a lot of that a lot of that. That detail. Now, that, that isn't to say it isn't important, and, and some people go on and on and on about the details of the tabernacle, uh, but we're just going to touch down just for a moment uh, regarding this detail, because there is a message in it. The priestly clothing. When you saw a priest in the tabernacle worship, you saw someone spectacular, someone extraordinary, someone dressed differently than you. And you were quite taken back by their beauty. And uh, I want to talk to you today about beauty. Why would God go to such detail about this beauty? And uh, beauty, I, I, um, I think about beauty when I think about um, a house guest that we had who was a, an art major. And uh, she was here visiting uh, the islands for a wedding. And so we put her up because we knew her parents. And uh, they had visited the island and they asked us if we could put her daughter up, their daughter up. So she wanted to thank us for um, having 
uh, just you know, put her up for the wedding. And so we, we said, well, that'd be great. What would you, what? she asked us for a picture of our, our children. And she gave, um, she gave us some notice that she was going to give us a sketch of that picture. And so within about three weeks, we got this package in the mail. And there it was, this large sketch of the girls playing in the bathtub and uh, with all kinds of soap on their heads and that sort of thing. And it was extraordinary in its beauty. And so we, we framed it. And uh, we have enjoyed that picture for years and years. But um, the sad thing about that picture is that the humidity on the island... Uh, little little spots of of brown started developing on that picture, and we couldn't stop it. We couldn't stop these these little dots were coming out of out of nowhere, and slowly and slowly the beauty of this picture faded away, and uh, to the point that it was is really kind of spoiled. I want to be around beauty that lasts. Don't you want to be around beauty that lasts? We love beauty, don't we? We are drawn to beauty. We want to be around it. Uh, some zoos, actually, it's a very interesting idea here. Some zoos have, have butterfly houses. Have you ever been to a zoo that has a butterfly house? Where you go in there and it's, it's humidity off the charts, like a just super tropical humidity. And the, when, you, when you walk in there, there's butterflies flying everywhere. And if you walk very slowly, the butterflies will land on your shoulder. And uh, beauty literally lands on you. Beauty's, beauty's all around you. We are drawn to beauty. Francis Schaeffer uh, was an influential writer in the 70s, uh, uh, a, a man, a, kind of a Renaissance man of multiple gifts and talents, and he was a preacher and writer on philosophy and theology. And Francis Schaeffer is the one who said, look, you want to know where a culture's going, watch the artists. The, watch the musicians. Watch the, the kinds of things that are being seen in the culture as art. That's where you can tell what the culture believes and where the culture is going. And so we are chasing beauty. Here's a book on Western art, the art of, of the Western world. And on the, on the introductory pages, there's an interesting comment about the Greeks. Uh, the Greeks, it goes like this. Let's see if I can find it here. It says here, Referring to Greek art, it says this, Greek statues. It says here, the Greeks asked themselves fundamental questions about their origins, about their destiny, about morality and government, and they used art in their quest. The search for beauty motivated their creativity. We're on a search for beauty. That's why we are drawn to art. That's why we produce art, or we like to purchase art. We love beauty. <clears throat> now, my view of high art is probably that picture of dogs playing poker on that velvet picture. Have you seen that one? That's sort of my, my view of art. Actually, I'm being a little bit facetious there. My, my grandfather, I'm very proud of my grandfather, in 1915... My grandfather was part of the Boston Illustrators School, and uh, this was the day of Norman Rockwell. When you had a magazine, you didn't have pictures, you had an, you had an illustrator. And my grandfather was a, a really good artist and was part of this school for a short time. And when my grandfather passed away, uh, he had remarried, and his, his uh, wife's children were in charge of sort of cleaning up the house. My family wasn't around. And one of my brothers got into a real panic, a cold sweat panic, realizing that people were in the house collecting things, putting things in boxes, throwing things away, and they didn't, he thought, probably understand how important my grandfather's art was. 
And my grandfather, as a kid growing up, you'd see my grandfather in Southern California there on his porch sketching, just, just, a, just a black charcoal sketch, just for the beauty of it and the fun of it. So there, my brother Jeff, at last minute before the, the dump truck arrives the next day, is a stack of my grandfather's art back with the trash. And we grab those things, and uh, now I have one of those pieces of art framed downstairs in my office. We love art. We love to be surrounded by beauty. Uh, 8.8 million people last year visited the famous art museum called the Louvre in Paris. They didn't go there to see stick figures. They didn't go there to see my art. They went to go see timeless art, classic art, something that touches the human experience in a very powerful way. And we long to beautify ourselves, don't we? Are you kicking yourself? You really did buy that ab machine, didn't you? You did, didn't you? That that one that's rusting in your garage now. You, You bought it because you imagined yourself becoming beautiful. We buy things to beautify ourselves. It's incredible, isn't it? The amount of money we spend. It's okay to look better. It's nice. It, uh, it's a beautiful thing to do. It helps other people. Uh, but uh, here in the tabernacle, we have an extraordinary, detailed account of furniture, of robes, of linen fine twine, gold, diamonds, uh, emeralds, God is taking all of his creation and he's making it come alive in the priesthood and in the tabernacle, this mobile worship center. And God is, God is making sure that when you would look upon the tabernacle, you would be dazed, you would be dazzled by its extraordinary beauty. Rich colors, reds, purples, blues, magnificent stones, semi-precious and precious stones, and the priest's robe, more blues, purples, and reds. And then all the way from the top of the priest, from his turban, which would say, holy unto the Lord, down to the toes of the priest, the hem of his garment, the hem of his robe, you would have color and uh, images, and God intended that these would represent The beauty of his creation, when you saw a priest, you could not just look away. You would watch and you would stare. Imagine out there in that desert, the boring, dusty desert, and you see someone with with robes of purple and red and gold. Quite, quite a sight. Let me cruise through a couple of things here in our thoughts about beauty. And I'm going to connect this um, with with Christ, obviously. We, we want to read this book with Christ in mind. Um, and so, first of all, our dependence on, on, on others uh, for what is beautiful. Our dependence on others for what is beautiful. Uh, earlier in the book of Exodus, we are introduced to a man named Bezalel. And Bezalel is actually the first person in the Bible who is referred to as being filled with the Spirit of God. He's a master artisan, a craftsman. He can shape things out of gold. He can make the tabernacle happen. And Bezalel actually heads up a small group of artisans who are gifted in this particular way. We are all, in many ways, dependent on others for beauty. Others, to, to, in many ways, to make us beautiful. We borrow their skills. We borrow their abilities. 
In many ways, sometimes when we're looking at beautiful art, we're looking away from ourselves for that moment, and that art is doing its work on us. It's outside of us. The pattern of the tabernacle, someone else is representing Israel to God, and someone else is making Israel beautiful, Bezalel. Uh, as kids, uh, parents name your children. I haven't come across many Bezalels in the church, but we forget him, and we shouldn't. He was the first filled with the Spirit of God. We depend on others for what makes us beautiful. You buy a pair of shoes, an Italian pair of loafers, guys, and you know, for a moment, they, before they get worn out and scuffed up, they make you look good, don't they? In fact, you get credit for them. You didn't make them. You didn't design it. But someone sees your nice shoes and they compliment you. And you take it and you receive it. Yes, thank you. As if you did it. Others have beautified you. Someone else with skill and beauty. You're wearing their beauty. It reflects you. It's interesting how little we, we depend or think about how dependent we are on others who make us beautiful. Of course, we think of the ultimate one, God, from whom all beauty is derived. And now we get down to the, the, the details that God is interested in in the tabernacle. And God loves the details, and he walks them through. Did you catch that, that part there in, in Exodus 39? Pomegranate, gold bell. Pomegranate, gold bell. Pomegranate, gold bell. The Bible actually goes like that. To make sure those who would actually be putting these on the hem of the garment would get it right. Now, I don't think the pomegranate has some secret meaning to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but... I'm going to suggest that when you eat a pomegranate, you can't help but notice the seeds, the bright red seeds bursting with flavor. The lowly pomegranate on its outside doesn't look like much at all. It's not a shiny apple. It's kind of a very, very humble fruit. But when you get into a pomegranate, the pomegranate begins to shine with glory. It signals the abundance that is God's creation. Full of seeds intended to make more pomegranates. Tabernacle worship is signaling that God intends to restore the bounty of creation, to lift the curse from the world and to restore Eden. The tabernacle was a mobile worship center, but it was also a picture of idyllic life, of Eden Life with God in the midst of his people. So suffice it to say that when you saw that priest's robe and you saw the purples and the blues and the reds and the golds and the pomegranates, when you saw those things, you, it, would be, it would make sense that you would conclude creation has a role to play in our redemption. The priest is handling sacrifices. The priest is representing people before God. And the priest is adorned with creation itself. Some aspect of creation is going to play a role in our redemption. So now we're, we're filled with anticipation. What might it look like? And of course, God the Son, the eternal one, takes upon our flesh and dwells among us, takes upon some aspect of this creation, is willing to become embodied in this creation. And he represents us to God, and through faith in him, 
we become beautiful through his righteousness. So we're dependent on others to, to make us beautiful. And so now let's look at the idea here, our Savior who makes us beautiful. Unless God places a priest right in front of us and tells us that through that priest we can be made beautiful, our, our shame is covered. Unless God instructs us detail by detail by detail, we will look away, we will not understand We will not be able to become whole again. We do try to become whole. We do try to be be healed of of our shame, of our our guilt. We we do try to cover ourselves up with with beauty, a kind of beauty from this world. It's, It's temporary. But in many ways it works, at least momentarily. We want to be we want to be beautiful again. We tell people there's a common idea in, in our world of, of self-esteem discussions and talk and about telling someone that, that inside there's this beautiful self and it just, it's just waiting to come out. Parenting ideas, of the less parenting, the better. And this beautiful little self will just come out. Sort of, your child is sort of naturally guided and, and they'll find their way. It's kind of a popular, popular idea. Do we need a priest? Do we need an offering? Is this, is this what we need to make us beautiful again? And the answer is yes. We are outside the temple. We are outside the, the tabernacle. The word profane literally finds its roots from that idea of being outside. We are not whole. We are not clean. There's something about us un, un, unacceptable, almost Non-human. We, we, we don't belong. This is that sense of, of shame. And so we want to become beautiful again, don't we? For some, for some of us, let me just ask you, well, just what makes you beautiful right now? What, what are you looking forward to? What do, what do you believe that would really work for your life? It's an ability. Maybe your job makes you beautiful. Your work, it just brings such meaning. It's, it's at the level of just, it's a completely whole thing. It makes you so, so filled with a sense of, of, of wholeness, a skill. Maybe it's a possession you have. This makes me, me beautiful. Your children, how they act, how other people respond to them. Your marriage. Uh, the marriage, a lot of energy goes into your marriage. In many, many ways, that's good. But uh, the cross is really not central to that marriage. It's, it's just our marriage. We're just, what's central to us is our marriage. My religion, maybe you, you adhere to your religion and you keep pretty good, uh, pretty good standards in your own life and you feel like you're keeping those standards so you adhere to your religion's prescribed way of behaving and you feel pretty good about that and that, and that makes you feel beautiful. For some of us, it may be just designing your life. You're, you're clever. You, you're smart. You're wise. You know how to avoid problems, and you, you're designing your life, and that, you're, you're heading to a beautiful life. You're able to pattern your life in a beautiful way. We have a, Korean, a couple of Korean churches in our presbytery, and I highlight this just because it's so 
poignant about how people think of themselves as, as beautiful. Every, every one of us, we have our own hang-ups here. It would be interesting to survey you and find out what makes Trinity Church beautiful. You know, it would be interesting. These Korean pastors, during a break at Presbytery, which is a gathering of elders, they, I was talking to them, and we are talking about what makes up the dynamics of their churches there in the Bay Area. And they said, well, look, here's how our churches really work. It's, the church is sort of divided into different groups. Um, among these congregations, education is the highest of all possible identity formation things. So if you went to the Ivy, uh, Ivy League uh, East Coast School, you're in one group. If you went to a West Coast college, a good college, a good university like maybe Stanford, you're not quite in that group, but you're in this group. And there's a lowly group who, for whatever reason, went to community college. They don't have as much academic beauty. So all of us, every church has its own ways of being or feeling beautiful. Every pastor has a a way of feeling and thinking and being beautiful, right? And I could, we could go on and on and on about <clears throat> what it means for us to be beautiful as a church. Some churches want to be just so up-to-date with technology, they, they can overdo and outperform the, the local Cineplex, the 15-plex movie house. There's the hipster churches, and there's churches that are the opposite of that, and they're, they're lost in the 16th century. They're lost in some golden age. That makes them beautiful. And so this, this is a world, it's almost like a, a, it's a can we don't even want to open because it's, it's so filled with, with, with craziness. But let me, let me just drive home one thought here at this moment. Images overwhelm us. Images overwhelm us. Images are powerful. They're overwhelming. There is an image you have. It may be coming from the culture. It's a perceived way of living, a way of the good life. There's an image in your mind. That image, if you dwell on it, you will now make it into an idol, and it will overwhelm your life, your passions. It will shape your, the, what animates your, your, your voice, your words. There's an we are image-driven. Now, it may be something physical and visible, but it also could be some, an ideology, a way of thinking or, or believing. The first audiences who saw movies, and this was recorded in New York City, the first groups who ever walked into a large room were with a 40-foot screen, and a 40-foot wide, 20 feet tall, the first people to sit there. They've been used to stage performances, and now they're looking at a... a a silent movie and they see a human face that's 15 feet tall now for us we're all of course that's a movie they were blown away by it and and then that face that eye would produce a tear and they were overwhelmed with the threat of someone you remember the old old person gets tied to the railroad tracks right and the train's coming and that drama right right well we laugh at that the original audiences were blown away by how serious it was. And if someone on the, on the screen is crying, they started to cry. They were directly connected, connected to the image. Now, we've become many more jaded 
over the years. But it's interesting that Plato would even write years ago of drama, of drama, and it's, it's over, it had a capacity to overwhelm people. They would identify with a person on the, on the stage, and they would begin to act out their life like that person. They would, you would directly connect with it. Rudolf Valentino, this good-looking Italian man who was part of these uh, uh, silent movies, he, he never said a word in a movie, never, not a word. And he went in for some operation, and it, it, it just didn't go well. And he died suddenly in his late 20s, I believe it is. And um, his, his, his funeral, oh, they're going to have a, just a standard funeral for this man. And they had no idea how popular he was. And some 30,000 people came, women swooning and uh, uh, fainting uh, because of this death. Never before. Images are powerful And here's the interesting thing about Jesus. The Bible tells us, I think in terms of Isaiah 53 and other passages, the Bible tells us that we'd all overlook him. He didn't come as an image that would overwhelm us. It's interesting, isn't it? He would not catch your attention. Uh, The priests of the tabernacle would catch your attention. And in fact, I would have to say, my... I need my attention, my attention caught. But not with Jesus. Jesus Christ is always overlooked. None of us can naturally say, oh, I got it. Well, I saw how beautiful Jesus is. I mean, I just did. None of us can say that. The Bible tells us that we all overlooked him. No one naturally sees him as beautiful. Isaiah 53, 2 says, when we see him, this is Isaiah 53, when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. No gold bells, no pomegranates, no beautiful robe. He was despised, Isaiah tells us, despised, rejected by men. He was not a good-looking Rudolph Valentino. Rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, this is Isaiah, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. It's not just that we overlooked him. He was repulsive to us, smitten by God, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. For him to be our priest representing us meant that he became ugly. He became sin for us. And then all of us like sheep have gone astray, the famous Bible verse, meaning we have all looked upon him and said, there can't be anything there. That's what it means in the context of Isaiah's, all of us like sheep have gone astray, meaning all of us are clueless. We don't know that we're looking at the one who's the author of our salvation. We don't know that we're looking at the one who is so beautiful, the one who can redeem us from our shame, can cover our shame, make us beautiful. We are like sheep, and we go astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, what did the Lord do do in response to this? Everyone's turning away from Jesus. What did the Lord do? Speaking of his Father, the Lord has laid on him... The iniquity of us all. Jesus, the divine son, said, Father, I'm willing to represent sinners. I'm willing to become sin on 
their behalf. Take my, my beauty and let's leave it in heaven and I will become one who is disguised. And then 53, 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. He shall justify many. Through this one on the cross, you'll be covered with his beauty and he will open your eyes to see how beautiful the cross is. You'll see how beautiful holiness is and you'll care about it. You'll see how beautiful loving God is with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and the beauty of God that covers your shame and your ugliness. No one sees their need of him, but God has caused your eyes to see. When the priests would make their sacrifices, they looked beautiful. When Jesus offered his body as a sacrifice, he did not look beautiful. And we gain in his life righteousness before the law of God. And though naked, brought, we've been brought a beautiful righteousness uh, from God. Jesus carried this to the cross. And now it is, a, a, it is now given to us. And the cross is now something we glory in. Why do we have fruit on the hem of the priest's robe? Because an aspect of this creation, the body of Jesus Christ, will make atonement for us and it will bear fruit. And what fruit gives us a picture of abundance? The lowly, overlooked pomegranate. The final priest of God will see the labor of his soul and he will be satisfied. And you are the labor of his soul. You are his fruit. And he wanted you to be covered with his beauty. And so what is our response to this? It's, our, it's the response that they had to the priests at the tabernacle. Whoa, that's spectacular. Whoa, that's not just any ordinary person. Whoa, I can't do that. I can't be that. Majesty, fear, evoking a response of awe and wonder, tremoring, beautiful. I've been made more gorgeous and wonderful than I ever could have done myself. And this is what the apostles experienced. They knew that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John chapter 1, full of grace and truth. They saw it. So, we pursue what's beautiful. We're dependent upon others to, to bring us beauty. And now there's a Savior who makes us beautiful. So, a few thoughts. Let's wrap this up. Living in light of these truths. What are we supposed to do with this? What, how, do we, how do we take this home? Well, what must we... No, let's think about a few things. What must we know? First of all, I want you to know that images are so powerful, they, have a po- they can control your life. Right now, for some of us, there's an image of, of a life. It's a life you wanted. It's a life you imagined. It's a life you, you, you worked hard at, you went to school for. It's a powerful image. It's controlling you. It's dominating you. It's the source of your sadness. You're aware that it's fleeting. You're aware you can't keep it in a jar. God's after you with a greater beauty. 
know that these images can rule your heart, rule my heart. And God is delivering us from foolish imaginations. God is faithful, and here's the good news. Here's what you must know. God is at work in you, and here's what he's doing. He's making you like his son. He's making you like the high priest. He's making you like him. He's not creating the distance and saying, don't ever approach. Don't ever think you can ever have your beauty covered. He is making you like that high priest. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, now he saw you in your sin, but he predestined you to be conformed, Romans 8.29, to be conformed with what? To the image of his son. That's underway. Wake up tomorrow. And before you sip your first cup of coffee, Lord, there's a process underway. I'm being conformed to something beautiful, eternal, wonderful, that your, your son is the firstborn among many brothers and God has moved in you and he has called you. He woke you up. The dungeon filled with light to use the language of Wesley and you are now in this extraordinary process of becoming beautiful like the son of God. Preach this daily to yourself. Preach it. Pray for the pastors that they would believe it, that their church wouldn't make them beautiful. Pray that God would press the image of his son upon all of us, that he is working, he's among us, and he's working through others around you. Your words matter. Your encouragements matter. Your corrections matter. Your involvement matter. The image of God is leaking out of you, and when it happens, it is beautiful. God wants us to experience this image, the beauty of the image of his son always. And now here's what Here's what you must, that's sort of what you must know. And now, what is it we're supposed to remember? What is most beautiful, the source of all beauty, is hidden from you. But God is willing that you know him, experience him, enjoy him. God desires that you glory in his son. It is hidden from you. Part of living in this world is just a sense of lostness, darkness, futility. Where's the beauty What I can hold on to is only so long. I can't hold on to it. And God comes in Colossians 3.16. There's a beautiful verse. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. What kind of wisdom? Look, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. This is the wisdom we should be seeking after. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You will forget his beauty. And then, what should I day by day seek God for? You should seek God for an awareness and a remembrance that you're covered by his grace, justified, declared righteous, you are a prodigal who has been given a robe to wear. Our Father in heaven is not ashamed to dress you up and to cover your shame. And what's, what's going to happen here is remarkable. It's going to be overwhelming. That's the idea. An image is overwhelming. There's an image from this creation that's overwhelming you, right? Now God, in his power, is going to give you an image of his son, and it will do the same thing, but far greater. It will overwhelm you. And here's what it looks like. Ministry. 
I'm so well taken care of. I'm so well loved. I'm so beautiful through Jesus Christ. I'm okay. Now, I can serve. Because I'm not seeking to be made beautiful by those that I serve or by any aspect of this creation. That's easy to preach. And now we have the Apostle Paul, and I'm done. Galatians 6.14. When this is just working and firing on all cylinders and the gospel is making you beautiful, here's how Paul put it. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What everyone overlooked, what everyone thought is just, that is, that's ugly. That is, Paul says, it's the the most beautiful thing ever. I'm going to boast in it. By which the world, all systems of making me beautiful, by which the world has been crucified to me. And I to the world. And so what does that lead to? Freedom to minister to people. Because you're no longer using them. They're no longer part of your, your system to make you beautiful, which will lead to just endless days of disappointment. Do you feel the freedom of this? Do you sense it? Do you feel, do you feel beautiful through Jesus Christ, who has given you his righteousness? Let's live in that beauty. Uh, let's become a church. That, that That's how we look beautiful. Um, not by achievement of our own. Not by... Not by something we put on us uh, that we could just go down and buy at, at the store. This is, the, this is what God gives us through his son. Let's pray, okay? Father, thank you for th- this time. Uh, make these words come to life, even as we drive home, as we think about how to live. Help us remember to preach this gospel to ourselves. Cover us with the beauty of your son. Give us his glory that we can give it to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.